Thank you, musicians and singers. Every one of you should get a chance to do one of those sets with Brandon Pierce next to you. It's great. Hey, I want to welcome each and every one of you here this morning on this beautiful day. Um, we'll call you guys the faithful. Not sure what we'll call the people of the beach right now, but we'll call you faithful. All right, we'll find another word for them. <laughs> welcome. My name is Steve. If you don't know me, I'm on the elder team here at Hall Center Church, and I'm also on the preaching team, and I get the um, amazing privilege to share from God's word with you today. Um, it is Memorial Day weekend, and so it is a great opportunity for us to consider, remember, maybe even gain some understanding uh, in what many have given for much of what we have. So I hope you take an opportunity this, this week to do that. We're in the book of Acts, Witnesses to the End. And so if you haven't been with us, I want to give you a, a quick intro to to kind of where we are and how we've gotten here, but Acts, the book of Acts, written by Luke, forms a bridge between the Gospels, the record of Jesus' life and teachings, and the writings of his apostles. So you have the Gospels and the writings of the apostles, in the middle you have the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts that we're reading, we're going through chapter by chapter, shows how Jesus continued to direct his followers through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed truth to the apostles, who then led and taught the church. The apostles also performed miracles in the name of Jesus. And we've been seeing a lot of that. We saw Peter heal a lame man a while ago. We saw Peter and John be freed from jail by an angel. Stephen did great signs and wonders. Philip performed miracles in Samaria and blew away this guy named Simon, who well, you remember if you remember that. Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritans. The Holy Spirit showed up. Philip was carried away from the Ethiopian to a, found himself hundreds of miles away. And we've also seen Paul's miraculous encounter with Jesus and his subsequent healing. And so last week we saw Paul kind of begin his ministry and David talked about the plot twist, if you recall, and how God uses things that we don't expect in his sovereignty to spread the gospel. And today we're going to see two more miracles performed by Jesus through Peter, and I've titled today's sermon, The Thrill of Hope. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. We'll look at a couple other scriptures as well. It will be up here, um, but if you'd like to turn to Acts 9, that would be great as well. And so I want to ask a question, what kind of things do we hope for? I'll give you an example of my life. We had the meetup at my house Wednesday night. It was great, but you know what I hoped for? I hope for good weather. I hope for good weather so that the fire pit could be out there and chairs would be out and plenty of room. And I was running around trying to find propane tanks just in, kind, in, in case mine died. And guess what? Nobody has any except for Hannaford. That's a quick pro tip for you. At the end of the day, I'm driving back from with my propane tanks and it starts to rain. And it started to rain harder. And then it let up a little bit. And I was like, oh, maybe there's hope. And then it started to downpour again. I was on a ride, and at the end of the day, we had room in the garage. We had a wonderful time. How many people here are, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Some of you are going to be bored to tears for the next couple minutes. But how many people here are Celtics fans? 
Let's see him. Well, we got a couple. I can speak to you. The Celtics. We have so much hope for the Celtics this year. They're really good. They got some great players. They did really great. They found themselves in the playoffs. They won the first round. They won the second round. Then they played Miami, and they lost the first game. That's okay. We can recover. They lost the second game. You're like, guys, come on. You're better than this. But we still had hope. Then they lost the third game. And we're like, come on. Is someone paying you to lose these games? How are you this bad? But we still had a teeny amount of hope. And so last night, Boston, no, wait, sorry. And so what Boston did after the first three games, they won the fourth one. And then they won the fifth one. We're like, what? And then last night they played game six to tie it up. I, I love this. And they won with a last second shot. Just watch the highlight. It's ridiculous. It's point one seconds left on the clock and it leaves his hand. It goes to the basket. They win. It's crazy. It's nuts. So you know what? We have hope. We have hope. Here's the deal. We do. We're like, I can't wait to watch this game Monday night. It's going to be amazing. Here's the deal. I'm going to let you all in on a little secret that you can just Google. No team ever in the history of the NBA has ever come back from a 3 nothing deficit to win, the, to win the series. It's never happened. But you know what? We still hope. We do. We don't care about those numbers. It doesn't matter. They're going to win. Well, they might not. Sorry. Oh, Lori, I thought you went back to be with the kids. Ooh. The numbers say they won't. But wouldn't it be great to be the first team ever? Sure, so we have hope. That's not what we're talking about today. Aha, and I do. That's a bit of a setup for you. Okay? We use the term hope a lot, and we really kind of throw it around a lot, and then we, we kind of just take a look at the Bible when the Bible uses the word hope and just use the same thinking, and I'm going to tell you that's really, really, really wrong. We're optimistic about the Celtics possibly winning their series. We're optimistic about that. It's different than the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done. And so I want to, I want to just take a minute for us to think. J.I. Packer has this quote. Whatever you got to do to concentrate while I read this, go for it. Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty. Christian hope is a certainty, guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance 
as to whether good things will ever actually come or whether the Celtics will win. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Amen? Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Christian hope today, and we're going to see it as we take a look at Acts chapter 9. And so what we've seen so far is, as if you've followed and you've been here and you've listened, we've seen that God's love runs to the rejected with the Samaritans. We've seen God's love run to the far away with the Ethiopian. And with Paul, we saw God's love run to the worst of us. And today, Luke is going to show us how God's love runs to the hopeless. The hopeless. Life has this way of leaving us feeling rejected, ignored, uncared for, or just plain old broken. You may feel defeated. You may wonder when the pain will end. Luke is going to show us how God heals the hopeless and brings them out of their brokenness. And the first place we're going to look at today is a man um, named Aeneas in Acts 9, 32 through 35. Who is this guy, Aeneas? Well, he's a paralyzed man that Peter had an encounter with. And so we're going to to jump right into the text today because we've got some fun stuff to talk about when we're done with the text. So I want to Jump right in. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And so, just as we look at this verse, we can see that Peter's taking on the role of an itinerant preacher. He's just going all kinds of places, sharing the gospel. And he came to the saints, so a group of believers who lived at Lydda. Lydda today is called Lod, L-O-D. If you look it up, Lod, Israel, you'll see it. It's currently where the Tel Aviv airport is located. It's kind of neat to to see how this just modernizes. In verse 33, there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed, in bed for eight years. Many of you love to stay in bed for a long time. Eight years is too long. It is. Take my word for it. But talk about hopelessness. And as I read this, I was struck the analogy to Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may not know of her, but man, if you're anywhere around my age, um, she knew a little bit about this kind of hopelessness. She was an active athletic teenager, and at the age of 17, she broke her neck in a diving accident at Chesapeake Bay. Her spinal cord was severed. She became paralyzed from the shoulders down. She has a little bit of arm motion, but can't use her hands or her legs. And after the accident, she was angry and depressed, and she begged friends to help her commit suicide. Talk about hopelessness. And so I'd, I, I, I invite you to dig into her life story to see how God has used her to bring hope to so many. But I want you to consider for a moment that this kind of paralysis, at the time of the book of Acts, there were no motorized wheelchairs. The Plymouth Voyager was not set up to be able to raise the... And send a little thing out and bring your motorized wheelchair and get you everywhere. Handicap accessibility at the Town Line Deli was not what it is today. It was a very, very hopeless existence. And so Aeneas was a hopeless man, bedridden for eight years. 
Next verse, 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. And so a literal translation of Jesus Christ heals you is, this instant the Messiah is healing you. I love that as the absolute literal translation. And, and Peter makes sure that it's clear that Peter doesn't heal, Jesus does. And he says, go make your bed. Chuck Swindoll jokes about the real miracle here is that a man went and made his bed. A great miracle. In any case, Aeneas is completely healed. And he started walking around town, and we see the result in verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The gospel spread as the result of God's love to the hopeless. And so we want to make sure as we see over and over in the book of Acts, the purpose of signs and miracles was to authenticate and illustrate the salvation of Jesus Christ. People heard the word, saw the signs, and believed. This miracle opened the door for the proclamation of the gospel. The second miracle we're going to look at today involved a woman in a seaside town about 10 miles away from Lydda. Her name was Dorcas. Her Hebrew name was Tabitha. And we're going to look at what happened to her in verses 36 to 43. And in verse 36, we get introduced to her. Let's read that. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So Tabitha translated Dorcas, it means gazelle, if you were wondering. She's called a disciple, which means follower, and is used here in the sense that she's a follower of Jesus. She's a believer. She was full of good works and acts of charity, full meaning that she just had a habit of doing good works, just had a habit of helping people, just had a habit of doing good things. Does this bring anyone to mind for you? Someone just in the habit of doing good things? I do. I won't name you all here because then I have to buy you lunch. Well, in any case, for Dorcas, things became pretty hopeless. And I think this is pretty hopeless. You tell me, verse 37, in those days she became ill and died. And when they'd washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And so what is going on here with the washing of the body? The washing of the body was typical of Jewish preparation for burial. If you were in Jerusalem, the body had to be buried the exact same day. But if you were outside of Jerusalem, you had three days from a ceremonial perspective to um, wait and buried the body. Let's look at verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, okay, so Joppa's here, Lydda's here on the coast, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. These believers had heard of great miracles done by God through Peter, and they believed that he could do something for this wonderful friend of theirs. And verse 39 so Peter rose and went with them. They had to go the 10 miles. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And so we learned something new about Dorcas. She made clothes for people. We mentioned here the widows that she made clothes for. This is quite a scene that Luke paints for us. 
And verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He put them all outside, literally threw them out. And I wish I had 10 minutes to show some of this, but this is exactly what Jesus did in Mark chapter 5, verse 40. In fact, the similarities between these two miracles and the miracles that Jesus did are kind of nutty and kind of cool and kind of amazing. It's an extra credit project for you, a cool one, if you're interested to look into it. But Jesus' ministry is the only model that the apostles had. And many of the miracles that we see in Acts are almost mirrors of Jesus' ministry. Verse 41, And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Wow. Wow. Okay, it is important that we don't forget Someone was just raised from the dead. This is really amazing. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Again, we see the result of the miracle. It is the spread of the gospel. It is belief. And if you're familiar with Acts, you know that what we're going to take a look at the next couple weeks as we dive further into God's Word is Peter being taken to school big time. And, and the lesson that Peter is going to learn the next few weeks is a lesson on legalism. And we're going to learn, hopefully, as well. I hope you'll join us because I guarantee that God has something for every one of us. But Peter's Jewish legalism must have been breaking down already for him to stay with a tanner. Tanners, by definition, were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because they had to deal with dead animal skins. Peter stayed with him. And that is such an entree into chapter 9. This is just a tease. Please come back, join us next week. But so what has the book of Acts been teaching us to this point that God's love has poured out on the world from Jerusalem. You can just, as you read this account, Jerusalem and then people scatter and God's love just pours out. It ran to the rejected when Philip went to Samaria. It ran to those far off when Philip was told to minister to an Ethiopian. And it ran to Paul, the worst of us. And today we've seen that God's love runs to the hopeless. A man paralyzed and bedridden for eight years, restored. A woman, loved and important to many, full of caring for others, dies and is given life again. God's love runs to the hopeless. But here we go. We have to be very clear. God's truth the gospel, his love was spread how? Through his followers. It was spread through his followers. God uses his followers to run to the rejected, the far off, the worst of us, and the hopeless. In each and every case of what we've seen 
God uses the people that have called Jesus Lord to go and minister and share. And so I want to tweak today's basic point to include something for us to consider today. And I've updated it. It should be on the next slide. God's love runs to the hopeless through us. We must be a people of hope. We must be. We will not be able to bring God's hope to those around us if we are not a people of hope. Hmm, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. Hope is a choice. Hope doesn't just happen to you. You're not hopeful one day and then not hopeful the next, like whether or not the Celtics win a game or not. That is not how this works. You choose to hope. Matt Chandler put it this way. He says, you are choosing to fuel and feed and cultivate either anxiety, anger, depression, rage, or you're choosing to cultivate hope and beauty and gratitude and gladness. So if we are to be a people of hope, if we... If we desire that God's love runs to the hopeless around us, how does that happen? What kind of choices do we make that keep us from being people of hope? What kind of choices do we make that keep us from being a people of hope? Well, I've compiled a list of what I call hope suckers. Yeah, they're hope suckers. They suck the hope right out of us. Short list of things that diminish the hope in our lives. You say, Steve, why couldn't you call it hope diminishers? Because I'm not that guy. Um, so there are a lot of things that can get in the way of us being people of hope. A lot, I mean, the list could go on and on and on. I'm going to just focus on a few. I'm going to put three together today for us to look at to help us identify areas in our lives where we see the hope being sucked out of us. And so the three that I've got here are just examples. They're probably going to resound with every one of us, but it's not an exhaustive list. So let's look at hope sucker number one. Pretending this place is your home. Ooh. How does this suck the hope out of you? Because this is not your home. You are just traveling through. And when you believe this is your home, you build a sense of permanence to this place that gives us so much more importance than it deserves. And your hope becomes about how things go here as opposed to the promised place that Jesus is making for you. And when we put our hope in this place, and how things go here, listen to me, when we put our hope in this place and how things go here, you will be disappointed. I guarantee it. It might not be today, but it's coming. You place your hope in this home and it will disappoint you. And the hope will be sucked right out of you. And guess what? God's love will not be able to run to the hopeless around us. Why? Because we are hopeless. 
We have forgotten who we are. We've forgotten what our home is. We've forgotten what matters. This place is not your home. When you treat it like it is, you will lose hope. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter himself says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what he calls us. The writer of Hebrews calls us strangers and exiles on the earth. This place is not your home. Acting like it is your home is our first hope sucker. Hope sucker number two follows right along and is kind of tied in in many ways. Hope sucker number two, placing your hope in human institutions. I could widen that out and say human anything, but Peter himself in 1 Peter 2 says this. And if you want to take a moment to turn to 1 Peter 2, um, do it, if you would. 1 Peter 2. If you're on your phone, it should be really quick. I hear a couple pages turning. As long as they don't turn too long, that's fine. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, who, by the way, at this point, the emperor was a complete joke and awful. Verse 14, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Ow. This is, this is loaded with ow. This doesn't help us when we like to be just upset at everything. Peter says to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Yuck. But that is not our hope. That is not our hope. That is our duty. There is a big difference between our hope and our duty. And how should we be recognized? This is what Peter says. If you're looking at that passage, look at verse 15 and tell me if I'm wrong. We are to be recognized as people whose good deeds are so good and so impactful that it just shuts people up. How on earth could our conduct be that amazing if we're filled with hope? But if we put our hope in human institutions, I guarantee you, again, you'll be disappointed and the hope will be sucked right out of us. And again, we'll find that God's love will not be able to run to the hopeless around us. Why? Because something that we have our hope in is temporary. Pretending this place is your home, number one, or placing your hope in human institution, hope suckers, numbers one and two. And hope sucker number three just needs a photo. How long before this pause gets awkward? That's Lori and me and Caleb years ago. <laughs> As I said earlier, every one of us needs to examine our lives and see what we consume that sucks the hope out of us. These things are amazing. Literally one of the most amazing things in the history of mankind. They really, truly are. They're fascinating. They're super helpful. 
Who even has a gazetter anymore? Nobody. Okay, some of you do. Sorry. What happens to many of us is that this thing right here becomes an idol that we bow to, spend all our time with, and do all our learning from. This picture is from an article that the Wall Street Journal did talking about online addiction. May each one of us, and I'm not camping here, I just made it one of the three because I think it belongs, take stock of how this little thing can suck the hope out of us and whether we're spreading the hope of God with things that we post. And if you want to go look at your Twitter feed, your Facebook profile, or your Instagram stories and see if someone would say you are a person of hope, well, we all have work to do. So we've got three hope suckers, pretending this is our home, placing our hope in human institutions, and these things. There are many more, but these three are just designed to get you to think about what things in your life might be sucking the hope out of you. And so I want to focus on the positive now. Peter himself, who we've, who, who's, who's the one Jesus is doing the miracles through today, in 1 Peter 1.13, he says this. It's right up here. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. There is no fact more sure in the history of the universe than that, than that he will return, he will judge the living and the dead, and create a new heaven and a new earth, a new home for those that have put their trust in him. Amen? It's a fact. Our hope is in the fact that that is going to happen. This is our hope, people. This is it. Peter says to set your hope fully on what is coming. We tend to want to set our hope fully on what we can see and touch right now. And Peter says, no, no, no. Set your hope fully on what Jesus is going to do. My hope is built on nothing less. And so many of us need to have our hope restored. So many of us have had the hope sucked right out of us. And so I want to talk just for another couple minutes about how we can restore what J.I. Packer calls an ethic of hope. He says this in that quick quote there. He says, an ethic of hope pervades the New Testament. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it as we study chapter by chapter. An ethic is a system of conduct basically how we live, how we do life. And so Packer says that how we do life is pervaded by hope. The system that drives our activity, according to the New Testament, is hope. And so Paul backs Peter up in this way when Romans 15.4, he says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Got it? Awesome. Appreciate it that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. One of the things God's Word does for us is give us hope. And so we are going to take a look at four things that restore hope. 
We looked at three hope suckers. I've got four hope restorers. We'll get through them pretty quickly. Hope restorer number one, and I just made the hardest one the first so we could get it out of the way, chase purity. John, in one of his epistles, he says in 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, let's talk about this briefly. We want to live like we have hope. We want to live like we have hope. Paul tells us how people live that don't have hope in his famous passage about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says if there's no hope and if there's no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the way to live is, and he says it right in 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so the challenge for us is to identify those places in our lives where we're living like we have no, no hope and to purify ourselves. That's the Apostle John's word, to purify himself. Paul, also in 1 Corinthians 15, says it this way. He's a little less clinical, we'll say. Paul says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and don't go on sinning. Okay. But the Bible tells us that one of the things that can destroy our hope is our disobedience. Chasing purity is hope restorer number one. And you know where in your life this is. You know what needs this chaste. It will be difficult to have God's love run to the hopeless through you if you don't. Number one, chase purity. Number two, hope restorer. Number two, be prepared. Philippians 1.21 is Paul's statement that he's prepared. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is my prayer for myself and for each and every one listening to me that we can say this, to live is Christ and die is gain. When we cannot say this, we can be sure that we are believing something that's a lie. And it will have to do with things like the permanence of this life, the importance of this life. Packer says it this way. Again, whatever you need to concentrate on the next few words, please do it. We should be ready to leave this world for a closer relationship with Christ, our Lord, at any time when the summons come. We should be ready to leave this world for a closer relationship with Christ, our Lord, at any time when the summons comes. thrilled, <laughs> the thrilled to see some of Ruth McKay's family here. But my land, is she ready? Is she prepared? You guys know she is. And Ruth, if you're watching, my prayer is the Holy Spirit fills you with this truth to live as Christ and die as gain. I feel like we should close in prayer. So what are those things that you grip really tight to and can't imagine not having? 
What are they? Honestly, it's the obvious ones. I can't imagine leaving my kids. Ah, oh, my friends, my family, my relationships, my money. What are those things you grip really tight and can't imagine not having? Those things keep you from being prepared. Paul, later in Philippians, says he counts those things rubbish in order that he could gain Christ and be found in him. Wow. Hope restore, number one, chase purity. Hope restore, number two, be prepared. Hope restore, number three. I'm going to need someone else to come up and preach this one for me. Be patient. Paul says in Romans 8, but if we hope for what we do not see, that is what we're doing. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And the Greek word for patience is translated perseverance, stubborn persistence in face of pressures. And Jesus says we're blessed when we patiently endure the things we have to go through in this life. Tim Keller, one of my absolute favorite Bible teachers, went home to be with Jesus a week and a half ago. And he said this. He said, the Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things, but usually through the hard things. I would recommend his book, Hope in Times of Fear, if you'd like to dig deeper into this topic of hope. Boy, he really focuses on the resurrection in that book, and it's just a real celebration. He's with Jesus now, praise God. Patience, stubborn persistence through those hard things will help us be a people of hope. Hope restorer number four, know his power. Again, Paul decides he wants to say something ridiculously difficult. When he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I need you to make sure you own this verse. If you are a follower of Christ, this is nuts. The creator of the universe has made a way for you to be restored to a loving relationship with him through Jesus. And we are being prepared for an eternity that your imagination cannot even comprehend. There is nothing you have in your thinking, nothing you have in your imagination that will even come close to the glory, the beauty, the fascination, the amazement of heaven and what God has for us. Nothing you can do with your brain. And what do we do? Well, we're like, well, what do you think? Uh, will it be like, like what we have here where we walk around and do things? We have no idea. The reason the Bible doesn't talk much about heavens is our brains cannot handle it. And that's what Paul says. It's going to be amazing, and God is making that happen. He has the power to make all of it happen, and he will make it happen. He has promised, and that makes it as sure as anything you can experience or think. And so I want to remind you of what Packer said at the beginning of our time together. He said, Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Romans 15, 13, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound 
in hope. Abounding in hope. That is our goal. In order to do that, we need to chase purity. We need to be prepared. We need to be patient. And we need to know his power. And why do we want to abound in hope? Why do we want to abound in hope? Because God's love runs to the hopeless through us. We must be a people of hope. The singers and the musicians can go ahead and come on up. It is my hope and my prayer that you've been challenged today in your understanding of what it looks like to be one who has their hope in Christ. If you're someone here today and you do not know the hope of Christ, you have never even heard of it, you can't fathom it. Oh, so many folks would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. It is a hope that's eternal, hope that is found in reality, in truth. And we're going to sing a song of hope today. We're going to sing, Every Giant Will Fall. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, C.S. Lewis, I believe, put it in such a way. He said, we have a vacation at the beach waiting for us, and we are just so happy to play in a mud puddle in the backyard. But that's so often how I feel when I approach your word and I realize all the things in my life that I tend to focus on, that I tend to place my hope in. It's insane how easy it is for me to forget the reality of the hope that we have in you. And so, Lord, today, may you challenge each one of us to be a people of hope so that those around us can know your love and so that your love can run to them through us. Help us to not be a barrier in the way of their experience of you. And Lord, I do pray for the McKay family. I'm thrilled that they're able to spend some time together. Oh, May we find every possible way to love on them in these difficult days, and we praise you for them and their testimony.